there's one other uh, just more personal element, if you will, to, to all that's happening. Um, you know, not, not all of you know all of my story. I can, I can point you back to a, a message from last uh, August that, I could, that reveals uh, a lot of that personal story. But um, one of the reasons why you'll often figure out that I'm, I'm so an, such an excitable person. Now, I've always been that way. Like, that isn't new to my character. Um, but uh, those of us in the room that have had... Uh, some difficulties in life, say, with the health department, um, not the literal health department, but in our health department, um, know that once you have those moments in life, life just becomes more and more and more precious, does it not? And, you know, uh, it is very possible that I could not be here today. And we couldn't be discussing having worship in the park this summer. And we couldn't be discussing having these discovery meetings about where God is sending us. this moment and we must be pursuing God with all that we are it's time to stop just sitting around we gotta get after it the way we're supposed to it, incredible things will happen when we do so I'll start with politics in 1858 <laughs> not really in 1858 at a political convention a virtually unknown politician spoke these famous words a house divided against itself cannot stand i believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free i don't expect the union to be dissolved. I, I don't expect the house to fall, but I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become either all one thing or all the other. Now, these words were, of course, spoken by Abraham Lincoln. In this case, as he was running for Senate from the state of Illinois. Now, the words he spoke are actually borrowed from our text today. Luke chapter 11, verse 17. You can go ahead and turn there now. We'll get there in just a moment where Jesus speaks these words for the first time. Now, Lincoln's speech was illustrating that the country must pick a side. There cannot be compromise. Eventually, either the whole country will be for or against slavery. The U.S. had to act now before it was too late. Spiritually speaking, the country is no different today than it was in the time of Abraham Lincoln. So as we dive into the text today, I want you to consider that theory, that we must act now before it's too late. Is our country currently divided? You know, that might be the one thing we could all be unified about. The fact that we're completely divided, figure out what you mean. Now, we probably couldn't agree on what it is we're divided over. There's probably many facets there. But the reality is this, it's not politics. Sorry. It's not a particular amendment to the Constitution. It's not race. It's not the economy. It's not the media. No, there is only one source of this divide, and it is absolutely a spiritual divide. You see, there are those who are in Christ, and there are those who are not yet in Christ. 
Now, you might say, well, no, there's a third group of people. There are. There are those that claim to be in Christ, but then act and live their life as if they never knew he existed. I put all of those people into the second category as well, those that don't truly know Christ just yet. Those of us who know and have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior must act now before it's too late. Our role to seek and save the lost is urgent. Those words of Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, we must snatch other people from the fire. We are running in and trying to pull them out before it's too late because no one knows the day or the hour when Jesus will return. So how do we define that? How do we define when it's too late for someone to come to Christ? Well, it's actually very simple. As long as there is breath in their lungs and Jesus has not returned, it is not too late yet. But again, none of us know that hour, when that hour will be. In the teachings today that we're going to look at, the attacks on Jesus are cranking up. They just keep cranking up, in part because of the words he's speaking. It's true. They're working out very hard, trying to figure out a way to get to him. A few weeks ago, in Luke chapter 10, verse 21, Jesus references a group of people. He calls them the wise and the learned people. Listen to the exact passage, Luke 10, 21. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. Now, we've talked about this idea of God hiding things from people before and what this truly means, how they were blinded possibly from seeing Jesus. These things are hidden from us because of our own hard heart. We cannot see them. Why? Why can't we see them? Because we're not asking to. Jesus just a few chapters ago said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. He's talking to the follower, to the believer Because in Revelation, what does Jesus do? He stands at the door and knocks at the heart of one that doesn't know him yet. He's not going to intrude. He's not going to invade. He's going to sit there and patiently wait for that person to open the door. But once that door is open and you've accepted Christ, then he wants you to come to him and ask and seek and knock. And he'll reveal it to us. He promises so often the truth is right in front of us, right in front of us. But we refuse to see it because of the sin in our own life, or maybe we're distracted or overwhelmed by another area of the life that we live, so the promptings that God has placed all around us, we we miss them. We miss them. That's part of the point of these meetings over the next two months, is to try to find these points where God is speaking to us, where he is showing us the way so that we don't miss it. We are at a critical cultural moment right now. Now, throughout the rest of this chapter, Jesus is going to be confronted by those who are in opposition to him, the very wise and learned people who he just spoke of. Even when the truth and overwhelming proof of the truth is right in front of their face, they just don't see it. They refuse to acknowledge it. As a matter of fact, they actually take a step further and they deny it. Plus, they do this. They create their own version of the truth to try to explain things away that everybody else is seeing. Side note, pause the scripture for a moment. Explaining the truth so that it changes what it means to make it be what you want it to mean is called a lie. If you didn't know that, that's kind of where we're at in this world. Um, In this example, it's a really big, fat, giant lie. 
that these leaders are telling people. So Luke 11, we'll begin actually in chapter four, or verse 14, okay? Verse 14, Jesus said this. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, it's by Beelzebul that the prince of demons, he's, he's driving out demons. Others tested Jesus by asking for a sign from heaven. It says Jesus knew their thoughts, and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against Satan himself, how can his kingdom stand? Now I say this to you because you're whispering back there, I hear you. You are claiming that I am driving out demons by Beelzebul. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do you and your followers drive out the demons? So, let they, so then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, well, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Hmm. When a strong man, Jesus tells them a story. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted, and he divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus, he, he frees this man from possession, from the possession of a demon. By most accounts, that would be a good thing, right? Especially in the eyes of the, the person that was healed in that moment. The crowd was amazed, it said, but that was all. That was all. It was a neat trick that Jesus just did. Great show. See, the act was undeniable. Everybody agreed that that really happened. Everyone saw what happened, and they agreed there was possibly only two options, either A, it happened by the power of God, or B, it happened by the power of Satan. Luke records that some in the crowd were on the latter side. They believed that it was by the power of Beelzebul. That's the demon, the, the prince of demons, if you will. That term been around a long time. Some of your translations might say Beelzebub, same thing. Okay? In this case, Beelzebub, long, long, long history of the world. It's there all over the place. For our purposes, what he is stating here is that this demon represents Satan, Himself. Why would some in the crowd believe that Jesus was an agent from Satan? Where did they get this idea? Well, it wasn't their own. They didn't just magically come up with this. This was an intentional rumor that had been spread about Jesus by the religious leaders and the teachers of the law. Again, there's only two options where Jesus' power came from, either from God and these signs and wonders prove it, or somehow he's tapped into the demonic world to fool people into thinking that God is responsible. And to say that Jesus' power is from the devil, well, that would be the ultimate form of blasphemy against God. So Jesus, he's now, picture it, he, he's on his final approach to Jerusalem, 951. He is on his way. He resolutely sets out for Jerusalem. He turns his face and nothing will deny him. His determination is obvious. His teachings more intense. His answers to their questions just a bit more pointed and those in charge are determined to undermine his credibility. That's all they have left to do. They are the ones responsible for spreading this rumor about Jesus. Because he's done nothing to cause people to even consider that being an actual option. If you search back, you actually find this idea was planted all the way back in Galilee and has spread now all the way into the southern part of Israel to this region and the people there trying to turn people against Jesus because nobody had ever had this kind of power before. So this was their explanation. Here's the crazy part. The people, some of them believe maybe his power is from Satan. Where are they? 
They're there watching. Meaning, hey, we don't really care where there's powers from. It's really cool to watch, so we're going to come and be a part of it. People do the same thing today. Some of the people in the crowd, well, they want more. They want more. They are, that's awesome, Jesus. That is an awesome trick. Man, can you show us more? They didn't believe. They didn't believe who he was. They just wanted to see more tricks. Their hearts were not changing. It was just a form of entertainment for those people. And I would guess that some of that crowd that was entertained there was probably just as entertained at his crucifixion just a few months later. It's a sad state of humanity, for sure. Luke tells us that this is an audible conversation. These are their thoughts, and Jesus knew their thoughts. And he knew that some people thought he was from Satan. So he's like, hey, let me give you an explanation here. I know you didn't officially raise your hand and ask, but let me share this with you. Why would Satan do that? It doesn't make any sense. How could his kingdom grow if indeed it was divided? Now, the powers of darkness, we've got to understand this. Sometimes we give Satan way too much credit and power over us. He doesn't have that much. He's not fully organized. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere at all times. He can't be in all times and through all times. He does not, let me repeat this, he does not know your future, nor can he. So his kingdom is very limited, and it's not fully organized. But even then, there would be no value in fighting against itself. It's a logical, simple argument Jesus is making here. So then Jesus says, okay, tell me, if, if by chance I am doing it that way, then tell me, where are your guys doing it? How are they getting it done? How are they casting out demons? Just go ahead, share that with me. Because here's the thing, when I drive out a demon, um, yeah, he's gone. He's out completely. And oh, by the way, I fully restore every element of that person as well. You just saw that in this man who can now fully speak as if nothing was ever wrong with him. So if I do use Satan, tell me, by whom do your people drive out these demons? Now, here's the backstory. There was a group of people in Jewish culture that day that went around casting out demons, allegedly. But their success was highly questionable, if there was any success at all. Some say the whole operation was a complete fraud. We don't know. We weren't there. That's not important to the story. If it is successful, then just tell me, are your guys able to free them as freely as I do? Are they as good to go as they are when I'm done with them? Is that change in the freed person nearly as dramatic as when you see me cast those demons out? Because only Jesus could fully restore the complete person, offering what amounted to a brand new life. Again, remember, only two options. It's either by the power of Satan or the power of God. That's it. No third choice. So then Jesus continues on. But if, but if I drive out demons by the finger of God, well then, now that's an image. That's an image for the Jewish people to really consider um, the finger of God. The finger of God wrote the Ten Commandments on the stone. The finger of God is what David writes about in Psalms is creating the heavens. There's a famous scene in the Old Testament where the finger of God literally writes on a wall in a room and everybody's like, and then there's even the Pharaoh's magicians in Exodus 8.19, where they admit that it has to be the finger of God that's responsible for these incredible plagues. There's no way this could happen any other way. So if I do this by the finger of God, then you know what that means. You know that that means that the kingdom of God has come, and what are you going to do about that? All of the signs, all of the wonders, especially the casting out of demons, were an indication that the kingdom of God was upon them. 
And the legal experts and the religious leaders, they knew it. But they refused to believe that it had come through Jesus. That next part of Jesus' story about the strong man, you see, someone stronger has now arrived. Someone greater is now here, and he's beginning to take over. He's recapturing the truth of who God is and the relationship that he wants to have with his people, and he is passing out these gifts to people and sharing it with every single person that will listen. The full truth is now fully available again, and this is a threat to the religious leader's power. It wasn't just them. That's happened again over the centuries, even within Christianity. Those in power sometimes obtain the power, and then they lock it up for themselves, and they find ways for people to come and have to obtain those things from them when we should be freely distributing, and that is what Jesus has gone back to. So his last statement that we mentioned there puts everybody in their place. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. There's only two options. Either you're with me, you love me, you are going to help me spread the truth, you're going to love others the same way that I love others, or mm, you're against me. Either way, either you are with me, you're trying to bring people closer to God, or you're not. You're not teaching them about the grace and the love and the mercy and the forgiveness. You're trying to scatter them about and create division within my kingdom and the people of God. Now, those who were spreading the lies about Jesus' power being from Satan very quickly knew which side of that statement they were on. So he goes on and he uses another illustration based on the miracle that they had just seen performed. Verse 24 it says, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through the arid places seeking rest but it doesn't find it. Then it says, I will return to the house that I left. And when it arrives, it finds the house all swept clean and put in order, but not occupied. That's a key. When it goes and takes seven, then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than, it's, than the first. And they go and they live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. You see, Jesus wanted to be very clear and easy to understand here. So here's what he's sharing. Whether in the case of a demon or any other force that Satan might use on your life or mine to try to turn us against God. If, if we rid ourselves of that demon, it's not enough. It's not enough to rid ourselves of that demon. It's not enough to get that sin out of our life. It's not enough to overcome that addiction. Because once we are free of that which was dwelling inside of us, we must replace it with the Spirit of God. Once God helps us overcome whatever that obstacle is and we are free and he frees us from whatever is destroying us, we must allow God in to fill us with his spirit. If we do not, then there is a void left within us and you better believe something will fill it. Satan, as Jesus says, will return and this time he'll return eight times more powerful than he was originally. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a scary thought. That's a scary thought, especially if you're a person that's overcome some of these things. You've had God come into your life and overcome these things in your life. You might even know someone who's literally had this. They've overcome an addiction. They've overcome some kind of sin problem in their life. They've overcome something great, but they never established a genuine relationship with their Savior. And so that void was filled back up with the things of this world. You've seen it happen. I know I have. Church, when we see people freed by the power of God with, from whatever, we need to rush in with the love of God and fill them up with who he is. We can't even give Satan a chance to creep in there. 
and return. It's a bad, bad case scenario, Jesus says. Verse 27, as Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd interrupts what he's saying. Blessed is the mother who gave birth to you and nursed you. Jesus replied, well, blessed rather are you, are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Now, he's not criticizing his mom, Mary. He loves his mom, Mary, very much. He's continuing to teach and to guide. Remember, large crowd, they've all gathered, they've all heard what's said, but hearing isn't enough. In order to receive the blessing, you've got to act. You've got to obey the word of God. Then Jesus, he literally begins to call them out. So you've gathered, you've seen this great miracle, you know the thoughts in your head, and Jesus is like, all right, I know what everybody's doing here, so here we go. Um, hey, y'all, you're a wicked generation. Just, just letting you know. Glad you're here. Thanks for coming. You're all evil. <laughs> It asks for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was the sign to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and then condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and now something greater than Jonah is here. See, it didn't matter what sign Jesus gave them. Jesus healed. Why did he heal? Well, he healed because he's compassionate. And he felt the need of that person. He heals because the kingdom of God is about freeing oppressed people. He heals to share that the kingdom of God has come near to those that would listen. He's not healing to compel anyone to faith. That's up to their personal decision. He's not doing tricks to entertain or to amuse the crowd the people watching and the people listening simply don't believe. He calls them wicked as a result. This lack of faith is not because of a lack of information about Jesus, but because of their evil, hard hearts. They've heard the word, and they choose not to believe it. Then he brings in Jonah. And we're not talking about the miracle of Jonah. We're talking about the teaching of Jonah. Jonah brought God's truth to the Ninevites, and to his surprise, they responded. Jesus is bringing God's truth back to the people of Israel. He's calling them to repent, just like Jonah called the Ninevites to repent. The Ninevites responded and repented. And so Jesus is asking the question, will you? Will you do the same as they did as well? Then he brings up this mention of the queen of the south. If you don't know what that's from, this was the queen of Sheba, 1 Kings chapter 10. It's a queen from a distant land. We know really nothing at all about her other than she'd heard of Solomon's wisdom and his great wealth, and she came to see for herself. She came a great distance, at great personal expense, to come before Solomon and see, and it says she saw and believed. Hmm. Yet now before this generation, someone infinitely greater than Solomon is here, and they won't believe or follow Jesus. Now Jesus is drawing on these ancient examples for the people of Israelite because they get it. They understand this is an example of people who showed faith, great faith, in fact, to help them see this is what will happen. You will be judged because of your lack of faith in me. <laughs> but he's not done yet. He's really just getting warmed up. He continues to try to teach and to preach and to share with them the error of their ways. So he gives this famous illustration many of you have heard before, verse 33. No one lights a lamp and puts it where, in a place where it'll be hidden under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand so that... So that way those who come in may see the light. 
And then he says, your eye, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when your eyes are unhealthy, your body also is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be just as full of light as when the lamp shines its light on you. Now, this famous passage is obvious. No one would do that with a light. No one would be dumb enough to put it under a bowl, first, for, first of all, because it's dumb. Second of all, because it's a waste of money and it's a waste of resources. No one would do that. He uses the absurd to make his point. Why? Why would you do that? Jesus is evaluating their heart. He is the light of the world, and people are accusing him of being from Satan. They're demanding him to perform a sign. It's a clear indication of what their hearts are full of, darkness. However, there's the light. Open your eyes. Take a look. They just have to see it. They have to allow the light in. When you and I, when we fully receive that light, oh my goodness, how it changes our lives. This light is something that the darkness cannot overcome. So he asks them to evaluate, hey, what's within you? He asks us the same question. Is it the light or are we full of darkness? Where is our heart? Where does your heart, your mind go when you begin thinking about God? That's an indication of what you're full of, okay? Move on. Where does your mind go when you think about others? Is it dark? Is it negative? Is it critical? of those other people, or is there something else? When you think about the world in which we live, where does your heart and your mind go? What are you full of? Those thoughts that come to mind are what you are full of, and it might not be the light. Is there hope? Is there peace? Is there a desire and urgency to reach out to this lost and dying world around you to serve and to worship the Lord your God and your Savior? If these are not things that you're dwelling on, then it might indicate that your heart has some room for darkness inside of it and we need to expel the darkness. This is a great place to do that. Repent today. Get that darkness out of you and let the full light of Jesus shine within you and open your eyes to the reality of the light of the world. Now, so far in his teachings today, Jesus hasn't made a lot of friends. Usually when your church assembles and you call them all wicked, they're not gonna be real happy, okay? They're not gonna be real happy. He's not made many friends. Now, there were there those that, that did follow him, that were his disciples, those kinds of folks, and they were like, whoa, did he just say that? I, okay, but they're there. But those in charge, those in charge and their followers are becoming more and more resistant. So it says, when Jesus had finished speaking with the crowds, a Pharisee invited him over, which is an odd thing to do after that conversation that he just had with the crowd. But a Pharisee drives, invites him over. Remember, they're trying to trick him. They're trying to get him to slip up, to make a mistake, to eat with them. He went and he reclined at the table, but the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus didn't first wash before the meal. Now, did Jesus wash before the meal? Now, you know he did on the way, because he's a good Jewish boy. But he didn't do it in their presence. He didn't do it in their viewing. Why? Jesus was so good at this. Everything was a teachable moment. Every little thing he did was expertly planned out to try to bring people closer to him. This was a moment to share the truth, even when the truth was a bit hard to swallow. Jesus knew what they were thinking. He came in, he didn't wash on purpose, so they would be thinking those things about him. So he said, now then, you Pharisees, you, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside, uh, you're full of greed and wickedness. Not a real nice thing to say to your 
party host, I guess. You foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But as for what's inside of you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. He gives them the remedy to their internal issues right away. They were evaluating their own outward perception of Jesus. In the exact same way, they evaluated the poor and the needy among them. They forgot what God had revealed to one of their faithful leaders long ago, a man named Samuel. You see, Samuel was tasked with choosing the second king of Israel as well. And he sent him, God sent him to the home of Jesse. And Samuel went in and he looked around. He's like, that's a good looking boy. That's a good looking boy. That's a good looking boy. It's got to be one of these boys. They're all really good looking. Nice job, Jesse. And God says, yeah, about that, um, no, 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 and no, and no. No, it's none of those people. You see, Samuel, you got it all wrong. The Lord doesn't look at the things people looks at. The Lord looks at the heart. First Kings 16, 7. So Jesus is, in essence, doing a heart check on this group of Pharisees, these leaders. He knows what's inside, and he knows it's not pretty, and he needs them to realize the same thing. So he launches into his attack. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint and rue and all other kinds of garden herbs, but, but you neglect the justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving out the former. Guys, Great job. Great job knowing the letter of the law down to the finest, tiniest little uh, spice. Wonderful, wonderful work. But um, you're kind of forgetting the most important thing. You're, you're ignoring the justice of God. And through your lack of care for the powerless and the oppressed, your lack of love for God is really obvious. You should be doing both. No, it's just, Jesus didn't discount what they were doing. No, that was good. Keep it up. Great work. But don't forget this too. All of these things are important to God. Woe to you Pharisees because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and, and, the, res, and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Jesus criticizes their desire to be seen as important among the people. Fellow followers, our stance as believers of Jesus Christ are to be humble servants who elevate God above others and way, way, way above ourselves. Woe to you because you are like unmarked graves which people walk over without even knowing it. Then Luke interrupts Jesus's uh, teaching here with someone who interrupts Jesus. An expert in the law answered him, teacher, when you, this isn't the Pharisees, this is a legal expert. The expert in the law says, teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. I love that Luke included this. It's amazing because Jesus was actually addressing the Pharisees. But the legal expert kind of picked up on a little bit of what Jesus was throwing down and said, hey, wait a minute. You're talking about me, aren't you? <laughs> and Jesus is like, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe. You know what, maybe I should address you more specifically. I'm not sure this is what the legal expert was looking for, verse 46. And you experts in the law, hey, woe to you. Why? Oh, because you lay burdens down on, a, on people and you won't even lift a hand to help them carry it. Why you yourselves won't lift one little finger. You won't lift one little finger to help them. But I'm not done yet, legal expert. Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets. It was your ancestors that killed them. And now you testify and approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets and you built their tombs. Because of this, the God in his wisdom said, I will send prophets and apostles, some of whom you, they will kill. Others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that have been since the shedding, since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel 
to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. But don't worry, expert in law, I'm not done yet. Woe to you, expert in the law, because you've taken away the key to knowledge. You yourself have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. And then it says, Jesus went outside. And the Pharisees and teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. Gee, I wonder why they were trying to do that. They really began to oppose him fiercely is the word they use now. Here's the thing. They couldn't oppose his signs and wonders They were all legit and they knew it. They couldn't discredit his teachings because they were so on point. The only thing they wished they could do was teach the same way. So then they tried to go after the man. That's their next objective. But here's the problem. It's going to be a little difficult because the man, Jesus, was 100% consistent, always the same, literally, yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and forever. There is no flaw in his character, unlike their own, which is what drove them to this fierce opposition, which ultimately leads them to lie, to cheat, and ultimately to convince those in charge that Jesus must die. Now, these are some of his most direct rebukes, his harshest criticisms of the Pharisees and the legal experts. So we must remember that he's not talking to all of them. There were Pharisees, there were legal experts that believed. But the scriptures tell us they did so in secret. They were rightfully afraid for their life. Doesn't mean it was okay that they did it in secret. Jesus would have been very disappointed in that. But it was a step in the right direction. They were slowly, slowly getting there. Church, these teachings, man, these are an example. These are a perfect example. It's first to admit that that we need a heart checkup. Uh, We need a transplant, possibly, if we haven't received that yet. Uh, Maybe we've we've received the transplant, but we need some new meds. Things are starting to get a little clogged up. We need to get things fixed up. We need that light to come in, the darkness to go away. But if you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he has a transformation in store for you that you cannot even imagine. If you're struggling with something today. It might be something huge in your life. Or you might be thinking, you know, hmm, things are pretty good. Things are pretty good. I just got a few little personal areas that kind of need tidied up just a little bit. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Jesus wants to help us through every part of our life. He died to help us overcome addiction. He died to help you overcome an obstacle in life. He died to help you forgive that person that has harmed you. He died to help you overcome or push through that limit that you've placed on yourself or maybe that limit that the world has placed upon you. Let Jesus come in today. Either way, doesn't matter. Let God in. Because there is truly a God-shaped hole in all of us, and it will be filled with something. But anything other than God will leave us lacking. Quit trying to just clean things up on the outside like the Pharisees did and make everybody on the outside look, hey, look, everything's just fine. All is well. It's great. Life is wonderful when you're really sick on the inside. Let God in to renovate your entire self from the inside out. You see, we got to act now before it's too late. We've got to respond to the words of Jesus. Don't just listen like the crowds. Listen and then trust and then obey. 
for there's no other way. Some of you might recognize these words. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he shines on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Not a shadow can rise, not a cloud in the skies, but his smile quickly drives it away. Not a doubt nor a fear, not a sigh nor a tear can abide while we trust and obey. Oh, then finally, in fellowship sweet, we will sit at his feet or we'll walk by his side in the way. What he says we will do, will we, church? Where he sins, we will go, will we, church? Never fear, only trust and obey. Father God, may we be a church. May we be a family. May we be a body of believers, of followers of your son who are willing to trust and obey. Not just listen and hear the words, but Father, trust and obey. Go and do your work. Father, if there are things we are dealing with in our life today, turn them over to you. Allow your spirit to fill that darkness that has crept inside of us. Whether intentionally or unintentionally, we look inside and we feel it. We see it. Hope is dwindling. We look at the world around us and we believe there's no hope. We look at the people around us and we have nothing but negative things to say, negative comments to make. Our minds just are bitter and angry at the people and the choices around us rather than seeing those people as lost and dying souls. Father, may we find ways to reach out as the body of Christ, as individuals within the body of Christ to those that are hurting, those that don't know you. Father, we don't, even so many of us that have been in the church so long don't even realize that many, most, if not the people that we talk to on a regular day, they don't know you. They've never known you. They've never heard of you. They've never studied your word. They don't know what you did for them. So even if we don't feel capable or competent, the most basic truth of Jesus we could share with them could rock their world and change their eternity. Father, some of us in the room, we are wonderful, beautiful, whitewashed tombs. We look so good on the outside, but Father, we're filled with death and destruction inside of us. Father, clean us up today. Come and clean us up. Some of us in the room have questions. We don't know the answers. Father, we're concerned, we're confused, we're maybe even doubting, that's okay. As long as we bring those things to you, for you alone can answer. Father, be with everyone today as we contemplate and consider decisions that the Spirit might have laid on our heart today. Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.